Well, welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, thank you. Good morning. Well, they're excited. So think about either a great book that you've recently read or a play that you've gone to see or a story that you've been recently told and put yourself in a spot where you're ending a climactic chapter, like a big event's taking place and you're ending it. And you'll notice as you think back to those spots that the main character does certain things. That main character has a, they pause and they often reflect and they often then look backwards at what's gone before and they reflect on that. They make assessments maybe of what's happened and they, they share their thoughts on it. And then they often will also then tee up, here's what's about to happen next. If you think of those, those great shows that leave a cliffhanger, you're like, oh, the whole summer that I have to wait for to see what happens next. We are in Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 to 39, and we get to see one of those moments. But unlike the examples I started with, which are fictional, or even maybe historical, if you're like, hey, nonfiction's my thing, I dig it, or historical, but right now we are right in redemptive history. We're in the center of God's Word. You're going to chapter 23 of the book of Matthew, and we're going to see the start of a giant climax in redemptive history. So let me set our context for us where we are. Jesus has made his triumphal entry. And once he's, what has he been doing as you studied Matthew? What has he been doing in this triumphal entry in this week, his passion week? What has he been doing in the temple? He cleansed it again. Let's not say smashing it up because that's not what he did. But he did cleanse the temple, right? He cleansed it, okay. Meaning he, 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 he caused all of the money changers and people that were handling the sacrificial system without the right heart to leave. Yes, with passion, he did that. What else? He's been talking to certain groups of people. Certain groups of people may have been, they have been trying to trick him. Yes. The Pharisees and Sadducees and the lawyers and the scribes, right? They've all come and they've all had their shot at Jesus because they were trying to do what? Were they trying to understand better and know how to follow God better? No. They were trying to trick him, to catch him in some point of error so that they could then toss his name into the mud and they could say, you are not the Son of God. There's no way because you were wrong over there and so that we've caught you so you can't be as perfect as you seem. That's where they are. That's what he's been doing. He's been teaching and so he's made his way in that triumphal He has cleansed the temple a second time. He has been questioned by all his adversaries and he's defeated all of their logic with the truth of God's word. You're halfway through the woes to those Pharisees and you see that Jesus does pronounce judgment on them for the way that they have lived, the way that they have handled the oracles of God that have been given to them. And where we are this morning is Jesus is exiting the temple for the last time. You're the son of God. Everybody has rejected you. And you're exiting the temple for the last time. If you go back, we're, we're studying verses 37 to 39, but go back to verse 34 and we'll start reading there this morning because it sets some context for where we're heading. So let's look at those prior three verses. Verse 34 of Matthew chapter 23, it says, Therefore, behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men. Inscribed, some of them you will kill and crucify, some of them you will scourge, and in your synagogues, 
uh, and persecute, persecute from city to city so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And then here's our text today. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Pray with me, please, as we start our study. Lord, we are in the midst of this awesome, truly awesome, this, the way you define that word, the way we use it in English is, is uh, amazed, but also fear of just of what is taking place. Uh, Lord, to think that humanity, that Israel, who you chose, has gone this far down the path of rejection, that they are rejecting their Messiah. And then we get to see, Lord, this morning, Jesus' heart, his compassion. Well, we get to see um, how he reacts to this rejection. And Lord, help us to learn much about who you are, about your character, about what it is to have a relationship with you. And Lord, help us to see also the cost of being unwilling to follow, the cost of rejection of your gospel. Lord, help it land very solidly in our hearts and in our minds this morning. And Lord, change us. Change us according to your word to walk more faithfully before you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the theme on your outline, you have it there at the top, right? The theme of our passage is idolatrous, and I can't remember if I put it in parentheses on your notes, I think I did, idolatrous and then humanity, but it's idolatrous Israel. The context is Jesus is speaking to Israel. But if we look out over all of time, the same principle that he's judging Israel for, rejection of his son, rejection of the gospel, idolatry is the same exact thing that we fall into, and we're going to see that. So lest you be quick to judge Israel because they're getting justly judged this morning think I am just in that same box I'm in that same exact spot so be quick don't be quick to judge Israel they they represent a lot of all of humanity in this so the theme is Israel deserves and receives God's wrath but our loving Savior Jesus in his glory and mercy offers hope through his gospel I'll say that one more time humanity deserves and receives God's wrath but our loving Savior Jesus in his glory and mercy offers hope through his gospel. I set it up that Jesus is leaving the temple for the last time before he is crucified, before he's even rejected by his own disciples. That hasn't happened just yet. And we're going to see three perfect reactions to idolatrous Israel this morning. The first one we're going to see is Christ's lament and compassion. And I want you to be thinking of, if I was just rejected for being right, would I land there? And then also I want you to be thinking of, would I be rejecting him the way I live my life today. Those are things I want you thinking about as we go through this. The first perfect reaction is his lament and compassion in verse 37. The second perfect reaction we're going to see is just judgment in verse 38. And the third perfect reaction to rejection we're going to see is Jesus' future glory and our hope, Israel's hope, in verse 39. So let's go to the first perfect reaction, which is Christ's lament and compassion. This is verse 37. I'll read it again. It says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and were unwilling. Does anybody know what the definition of lament is or could give an idea behind that word? 
A lament. Yes. Yes, mourning based off of sadness, great sorrow, right? Um, the prophet Jeremiah, there's a book in the Bible right after Jeremiah is called Lamentations. And it's all about Jeremiah. God showed him the vision of the destruction of Israel going deported into Babylon. And he's lamenting and he's sorrowful. He sees that they're taken away from their home. They're taken, all these families are, many are hurt and killed and they're deported and slaves in another country. It's a terrible time. A lament is seen and feeling a terrible time and the sorrow of it. So this lamentation, he starts with this verse. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he's lamenting over what's about to happen and what is happening, his own rejection. He calls it Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the heart of Israel's worship center. It's the heart of Israel's spiritual life. It's the heart even of the political and economic of the kingdom. And he's setting that up so he's representing all of Israel. It's the spiritual seat and he's lamenting over them. So why lament over Jerusalem? When, why is he doing that? They're rejecting him. He came. That verse at the end, in verse 39, where it quotes, it says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a Messianic uh, verse from Psalm 118. They said that to him just a few days ago as he entered Jerusalem. But now he's leaving and he knows they're going to kill him. He's lamenting over their rejection. And he repeats the term to show even more so of, of how much he feels it. Uh, I would explain it to you by just other times Jesus does this. So if you think about the repeated term, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you look at Luke 10, 41, he says it about another character in biblical history, about Martha. You remember Mary and Martha? Luke 10, 41 says, But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. You all remember that story about Mary and Martha? What, what was going on there? What was Martha doing? Go ahead, Tex. She's working. She's working. She was so busy, and she just came to Jesus, and she said what? Would you ask my sister to help me? Because she's sitting there by you, and I'm doing all this work to get ready. And listen to what Jesus said. He said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. He does this again with Simon Peter. We all love Peter. Uh, and this is Luke twenty-two thirty-one. 31. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has de demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. In the next couple of verses, he predicts and tells Simon Peter that you are going to deny me before the rooster crows three times. So you can see his heart for Simon. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. You see Jesus' heart when he repeats these words. He's, I'll show you one more example, this time in Acts, about a character that we all know, a gentleman named Saul. In chapter 9 of Acts, Saul is on his way to Damascus, and what was Saul trying to do to Christians? Kill them, put them in prison. He was trying to shut down the way of life in Christ by following Him as Lord and Savior. He was trying to shut that down because it was different. And this is what Jesus says to Saul on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, verse 4. He says, He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
I, re- I show you those different times that Jesus used that same repeating of the name because it shows you his heart. It shows you his compassion. It shows you his love for these people. So, but there's other things that we see from these verses. There's something that's happening that all of these characters are doing that's really important for us to catch, why Jesus calls them out and repeats their name. What's consistent between what, what, what the Jews were doing to Jesus, what Martha was guilty of doing, what Simon Peter was going to do, and what Saul was doing as Jesus called them to himself? What were they all doing? I'm going to wait, so you just need to think, because you need to be with me on this one. What were the Jews doing to Jesus? Did Fletcher have it? Can he not say anything? They were questioning him from a spirit of, I want to obey you, from a spirit of, I don't want to obey you. I don't want to obey you. Yes. Mary got rewarded and Martha Mary, because she's doing the right thing. Mary was listening and worshiping Jesus. What was Martha doing? She was cleaning, but why was she cleaning? Did she think it was more important for her house to be clean as to sit at Jesus' feet and worship him? Yes. What about Saul? What was he doing? He was persecuting believers. He was killing believers. He was imprisoning believers. And he wasn't following after the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these characters that we see where Jesus uses that repeating of the name, they're all rejecting him. They're all living their own life. They're all doing what they want as opposed to what God wants. And they're happy doing it, even in the sense of killing people, killing believers, as we saw in Saul's example, or in Simon Peter's example, he denies Christ just a few hours after that conversation. There's rejection taking place. What I want you to see, though, and that's, and that's why Jesus is lamenting over Jerusalem, because he's being rejected. And is this the first time that God told the Israelites that the Messiah is coming? It's like, it's like, whoa, we never knew this was coming in the first place. This is a big surprise. Of course we're confused. Is this the first? No, no, no. He's, he's been telling his plan of redemptive history all the way back since Genesis. But if you go back through history, you can see that this pattern of rejecting, rejecting God continues, right? Abel and Cain, way back in Genesis chapter 4. Cain did what to Abel? Murdered him, right? And why did he do that? Because Abel's sacrifice to God was accepted, meaning that his heart was right before the Lord as he, sa- as he made a sacrifice. Cain's heart was not right before the Lord, so his sacrifice was not accepted. And Cain was angry that he didn't get that. He was angry at the Lord because he did not get accepted, meaning I want to do it my way, and you're saying my way is the wrong way. I'm angry enough to murder. Look at Moses. The people, even at the beginning, of the, right at the Red Sea, right? What happened to where the Israelites left Egypt? Ten things just happened that were miraculous. The plagues were one of them, right? God's judgment on them, right? They all happened. They all happened. And then they're just a day away, and they're staring at the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army's coming at them, and they're going, what do we do? And instead of, like, trust the Lord, because look at what God just did. What did they say? Moses, this is ridiculous. I want to go back to Egypt. You're leading us in the wrong way. And you're like, hold on a second. 
And then so the Red Sea parts and they walk across. And then they get thirsty. And what do they do? They complain. Not just complain. They say, Moses, this is ridiculous. I want to go back to Egypt where it wasn't hard like this. I want you to see this pattern of humanity of rejecting God did not start right then in in Jerusalem. This pattern started way back. All the way, I didn't, I could have gone back to Adam and Eve where his word is rejected. That's just a few examples of when we reject our Lord. Recently in the parables, you guys just studied this one. The parable of the vine growers. Matthew chapter 21. What happened in the parable of the vine growers? A man opens a vineyard. I'll tee it up for you so your memory kicks in. He opens a vineyard. Oh, I don't even have to go any further. Yes. Right, so he sins. Yes, so he said, they say, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. This pattern of God sending his truth through people that he has chosen to his people, to cause repentance, to share the gospel with them, to share the truth of, uh, of, of God with them, and humanity in their idolatry and their hatred of God chooses to kill them has happened since Genesis and onward. And it's even happening right now in our passage today. The best illustration is what is just taking place. Jesus just taught in the temple. Jesus taught, just showed them who he really is. He, did, he, he just overcame all of the intellectual might of the the worship leaders, the spiritual leaders of Israel, and they still want to reject him, and they still want to kill him. And when Pilate offers, who do you want to be released? What does everyone say? Not just the leaders of Israel. What does the entire crowd of people there say? Crucify him. him. So it's not just the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. It's all of them. And you thought I think, okay, Drew told me to think, not just be angry at the Israelites because they rejected Jesus, but where do I fit into all of this? What they were doing is they were focused on themselves, what they wanted, and they definitely did not want to obey God because it offended them because he was calling them wrong for their sin, and he was right to do so. But we have to know that God's been calling his people to himself since the beginning of Genesis chapter 3. When he said in the, when he said in the garden in chapter, chapter 3.15, he said that the first gospel is taking place, is that... My son's going to come, and he's going to redeem. So consider your heart for the lost, my friends. Those of you that know Christ in this room, consider your heart for the lost. Consider your heart where uh, people you know, family members you know, it's convicting to me is that I know that that rejection is real. I know that people have rejected Christ around me, and I want to love them the same way that Jesus loves them. And if you don't know the Lord, consider where you are. You're currently rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a dangerous thing to do. We'll look at that more. But if you want to know the Lord Jesus Christ, we keep going in verse 37. And he says, How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. So he, 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 he calls Jerusalem to hear him. He says, This is what I want. This how often? Consider the patience of God. And all those examples we gave. Consider his patience. Consider how he, wait. he doesn't destroy as soon as you sin. He, doesn't, he didn't destroy his people as soon as they turned away. He doesn't destroy humanity as soon as they turned away. He waits. Consider his mercy. He says, how often I wanted. This I wanted is the word for desire. 
And he showed this desire. Well, what is this desire of God's heart? In Matthew chapter 11, 28, he says this, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 1, he says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to do what? To call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. In Mark 1, 15, it's recorded that he says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus' heart is that all would come to him in repentance. In theology, we call this the general call of grace. And it doesn't stop just in the gospels. In Acts chapter 17, verse 30, it continues into the New Testament, into the church age. It says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men. He's declaring to men not just guys, to men, all of humanity. He's declaring to you today that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men who that man's going to be by raising him from the dead. He's declaring to all men, now is the time to everywhere that they should repent. So what did Jesus want to do? Where's his heart? How does he feel about you this morning? How does he feel about all of humanity still as he reigns in heaven and will come and reign again as we'll see on this earth? He says an illustration. He says, gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. He took us all the way to a farmyard. I'm not sure if you've ever watched a chicken with chicks, but I'll put it this way. The commentator Hendrickson lays it down really well. He says, imagine that you're a, a, a hen with your chicks in the farmyard. Everything's at peace. Everything's, their people are, are pecking at the ground. They're eating their food. Everything's great. And then you look up in the sky and a chicken hawk is zooming down, wings folded, claws out, and they're aiming right for one of those chicks. And he says, if that doesn't get it done, then the commentator Hendrickson says, hey, you're in a farmyard. You're a chick. You're just examining your life. You're just, you're not even, you're just, you're just eating the food off the ground and you feel safe. And some storm clouds roll up and then some drops start falling and then they fall faster and faster and faster. And pretty soon it's not just a, a little bit of rain. It's a storm. It's a flood and it's coming. And what does that hen do? She clucks just a couple times and those chicks perk their ears up and they run under her wings and she gathers them to safety and takes them into a safe spot. That's what Jesus wants for his people. That's his heart. He wants them to run underneath his wings and to be gathered into a safe place where he can provide and protect them. That's his heart. That's how he feels about you. That's how he feels about me. That's how he feels about his people. But consider the reality of where he just said that. He's lamenting because the Jews are doing what right now? It starts with an R and ends with ejecting him. Rejecting him. There we go, right, yes. They're rejecting him. And then he says, but this is what I want for you. He's telling people that are going to kill him, I want you to come to me so I can gather you underneath my wings and protect you. Consider that compassion. This call to repentance, this desire of God's heart that his people respond. You've seen Jesus' compassion and you've seen his lamentation and like we've talked about, his compassion still applies to everybody today, to you, to me. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you experience it. Because you've experienced forgiveness for your sin. You've experienced salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. If you're thinking in your head and your heart, like, I, I, don't, I don't know 
if I know the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to let you know how you can know him so you can be gathered underneath his wings and be protected and be part of that family, just like those chicks in that hen. There's a reality that we've seen this morning that God has created the entire earth that we, earth that we all live in. He's over it all and sovereign. And he set it up. And he set commands up that we should obey. And humans have chosen to disobey. We've all chosen to sin. We've all chosen to reject him. We've all chosen to do that in our lives. We choose, I want what I want over God, what God wants. And that's called sin. But he's made a way of hope for you. He's made a way of hope for all that would believe. And that way of hope is he sent his son, Jesus Christ. You are reading that story in Matthew. You're living that story on Sundays and Wednesdays. And he sent his son. His son is perfect. His son, you're about to study, is going to die on that cross. And not just die a physical death. But when he dies on that cross, the perfect man, Jesus Christ, perfect God, Jesus Christ, he takes all of your sin, all of my sin, all of humanity's sin, and he pays for it on the cross. He satisfies God's wrath toward your sin on that cross. So not just a horrible death physically, but God's wrath is justly satisfied by his perfect son, Jesus Christ. And he did that because he loves you. And he calls for a response. He says, if you repent of your sins and you place all of your faith in Christ for what he's done for you because he loves you that much, then he makes a promise. He says, I will save you. In Romans, he says, you will not be disappointed um, and you will be saved. And that's available to all that would repent and believe. He calls for that. And that's the call he's offering today. So please, don't be like the last four words of verse 37. Go back to your Bibles. What are the last four words of verse 37 of chapter 23? Start, but they were unwilling. We did it. But they were unwilling. Don't be like them. Learn from the Israelites. Play out that word picture for me. Jesus just said, I want to gather you. He's lamenting over Jerusalem. He's done everything he can for them other than die. And he's about to do that. And what do they do? They still reject him. Consider the foolishness is to reject Christ in that offer of salvation. Go back to the farmyard. You're a chick in this illustration. That's a good thing. Remember, they're soft little yellow guys that are awesome. Those are, they're great. You're a chick. And that storm is coming. And what's happening is your mother hen clucks, says, get over here. It's safe. I'm going to protect you. And you say, no, no. I got this. You don't have anything. You're a chick. You're a little yellow fuzzball in a farmyard. But that, that, the ridiculousness where you snicker and hear that, that is exactly what humanity is doing. Where there's a chicken hawk flying down. Is that chick going to fight off a hawk with talons? Who's going to win that battle? Not the little yellow fuzzy guy. He's done. That's the ridiculousness of the rejection of Christ. You see it. You see it. In Romans chapter 1, verses 21 and, and through 23, we see how God explains this rejection. So it says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. Did you catch that? Even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of their incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and in four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Paul takes us out of the farmyard and he puts us right into your home spot, into your life. And he says, 
You've been given the knowledge of God. Through creation, you can see Him. He's written the truth of, you on, the truth of Himself on your hearts. But professing to be wise, they become fools. And we exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image of, in the form of corruptible man or of animals, birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. That's the rejection that's happening. That's why Jesus is lamenting. There's a cost to this rejection. There always is and there always will be until Jesus returns. And this closes the look at our first perfect reaction at Jesus in the face of rejection. He laments and has compassion on them and offers hope through the gospel. As we look at his second perfect reaction, we see, though, just judgment. This is verse 38. He says, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Behold is a word that should say, Give me all of your ears right now. If you were asleep, if you were slinking about something else, you thought my oxen are over there in the field, I don't know where you were. You're in that farmyard that Drew put you in. Get out of there and listen, is what that word means. If, who was at the men's breakfast yesterday where Wade taught out of Psalm 78? Okay, great. So he used a similar word and a similar word picture that I want you all to see. It's perfect. When you whistle for a dog or a dog hears something, you're watching them out in your yard and they hear something. What happens to their ears and their body? They, they perk up. They get real tense. They're ready, right? We, 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 uh, we recently had four little baby bunnies in our backyard, cutest thing ever. And uh, we had them and they were there. And, and when, you, when you would walk out in the backyard and they were out and they heard and saw you, they stopped and they lowered themselves to the ground. They can squish really close to the ground. They lower themselves to the ground and they were ready. They were ready to bolt left, right, whatever we need to do, they're ready. And that's the idea behind this word behold is listen and be ready to take action. And he says that. He says, behold, listen to me. He says, your, he says, your house is being left to you desolate. When he's talking about your house, he's not talking about their little abode that they lived in in the city of Jerusalem somewhere. He's talking about, behold, your house, the seat of Judaism, the seat of Israel, Jerusalem, is going to be left to you desolate. And not just physically. That will happen in 70 AD when the Roman, uh, the Roman general Titus comes in because Politically, the Jews revolt against Rome and Rome comes in and destroys everything. That does happen in 70 AD. But more importantly, spiritually, Christ is leaving the temple and he's saying, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Christ's presence, his instruction, his aid, they are rejecting him and they're being left in their judgment. This idea of being left to you desolate isn't, this isn't the first time. Jesus has been, God has been telling the Israelites this is going to happen for a long time. In 1 Kings chapter 9, he says it this way. He says, I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them and the house which I have consecrated for my name. I will cast out of my sight. So Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hissed. Like, like it's that bad, right? That's the type of hiss they're talking about. They're astonished. And hiss and say, why has the Lord done thus to the land and to this house? And they will say, Here's why God judges. They get it right. Because they forsook the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and adopted other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this adversity on them. That prophecy in 1 Kings is coming, coming, is coming, full, to coming full fulfillment right there in their time. And they know it. These Jews at that time, they knew what 1 Kings said. They know what Isaiah 64, 11, that says something similar. And Jeremiah 12, 7, and Jeremiah 22, 5, they know what those say. They do. They're aware of what's happening. But they are forsaking the Lord their God. And they're choosing to worship 
other gods instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to ask ourselves this question. The judgment is just because they are choosing to reject the Lord. But what's the purpose in God's judgment? What is God? And he's going to destroy Israel. He's going to, or at least he's going to knock down Jerusalem. He knocked down the temple in, in 70 AD. He's rejecting Israel as his people. What's the purpose of that? Go to New Testament, uh, further than the New Testament. Go to Romans chapter 9 and find verse 22. Paul explains this really well. The purpose isn't just to show that you rejected me, so I'm judging you. That is happening, but the, the purpose of God in this is much more than that. It's much more glorious. Go to Romans chapter 9, find verse 22. Romans chapter 9, find verse 22. And we'll see what God's purpose is. Romans chapter 9, verse 22. Oh, here. I got one. Thank you. You're welcome. Perfect. Romans chapter 9, verse 22. It says, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy? Hold on. What was the purpose of God in judgment? He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, the Gentiles, non-Jews, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. That's the purpose of God in judgment. Yes, he judges sin righteously. Yes, he does that. This judgment on Israel, though, is to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. And it's not just Paul that says this. If you keep reading verse 25, he says, As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. It's windy. Isaiah cries out in verse 27 and says this. This is chapter 9 of Romans, verse 27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. Ah, there's a new part of God's judgment. You have to be paying attention there. He said, I'm calling people, back in verse 24, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. We are being grafted in. It's the purpose of God's judgment. But then go back and read verse 27. Look at it. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the... You have to look at it. The word is next in Romans chapter 9, verse 27. Maybe you didn't turn there when I asked you to turn there, which you can think about that one. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. The remnant that will be saved. This is in the context of Israel. God's not just judging Israel and then they're done. He has a remnant that he's going to preserve. He has salvation that's going to be offered to Gentiles and Jews, and they're both going to respond. This is the heart of God being executed. Verse 28, he says, For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left, us, had, left to, had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Paul is saying, unless God intervened and saved us, Gentile and Jews alike, we would all have rejected him. We would all have rejected him. When you look at this explanation of Paul and you look at what's taking place and you see God's purpose for his judgment, one, it's to bring in the Gentiles into salvation. Two, it's gonna, he's, he's demonstrating his glory on this backdrop and he's even going to preserve a remnant of Israel. 
In chapter 10, verse 3, he says, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, even though Israel rejected him. This fulfillment of God's judgment on the physical sense, I said it already, I'll say it again so you remember, it initially takes place in 70 A.D. when the Roman general Titus comes through and destroys the temple. But think about the history of Israel since then. I'm not sure if you've studied Israel, but you should because you see what it's like to live under God's judgment. Because remember, Christ says, he said, your house has left you desolate. He's leaving them. He's leaving them in judgment. And he'll explain for how long in just a minute in our passage. But think about what's happened to Israel since he's left them. If you go back and study their history, it's a story of persecution and persecution and persecution and persecution and persecution. Even to this day, it's persecution. Everybody wants to destroy Israel. I mean, literally, I mean, I'm not being facetious. You go over to the land of the Middle East where they are currently there, physically located, every country around them wants them gone. Because Satan knows that they are God's chosen people. And Satan knows that God promised back in Romans chapter 9, verse 27, that there's a remnant that will be saved. And if he can somehow figure it out to destroy them, then he wins and God loses. Is that going to happen? No, because if you said yes to me, then you'd say, I think God can be beaten. And that is not God's character. God is all-powerful and sovereign. And he told us in his word that there's a remnant that's going to be saved. They're never going to be annihilated. It's been tried many times, but because God is going to preserve a remnant, he has future plans for them, but right now they're no longer under his blessing, which is why they suffer. You can see God's heart for his people, even in the moment of their rejection. That closes down our second reaction, is that the reaction of Christ to the matter of rejection is just a judgment, but even with compassion there, and we'll look at our third perfect reaction, which is Christ's future glory and Israel's Hope. And this is verse 39. I told you he's going to tell us when he's going to bring them back into the fold, bring Israel back into the fold. Verse 39 says, For I say to you, Israel, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it says, For I say to you, is this, this is my judgment upon you. I'm further explaining this judgment. He says, From now on, you will not see me. What's the next word? From now on, you will not see me. Until we did it, uh, until, which means it's going to happen, but not yet. You're not going to see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In the Old Testament, in the book of Zechariah, the prophet explains this future hope, this future hope for Israel, this idea of you're going to come back and you're going to save a remnant. In Zechariah chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, it says this, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Think about those words. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. That is the gospel. That is repentance that's taking place. Titus 3.5 says it the way that we are familiar with it. It says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds that we have done in righteousness, but He saved us 
And I just forgot the rest of that verse. And I gave away my Bible. What is it? You got it. Just say it louder. But according to his mercy and the washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Thank you. I just couldn't just left. Yes, Taylor. Say it. And the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Taylor. Right? He saved us. Not on our righteousness. Right? But according to his mercy. He regenerates us. Look at what he just promised to Israel in Zechariah chapter 12. I will pour it out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication. And what's the response to the gospel? The response to the gospel is a broken heart that realizes that I'm a sinner in front of a holy God. And that is a a place where mourning does take place. You realize that your sin hurts God. Your sin offends God. Your sin causes his wrath to be upon you. It says, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. He promises that. They have a future. They really do. In Zechariah chapter 13, verses one, verse 1, it says, In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. It's talking about it's going to be washed away. Their sin and their impurity is going to be washed away. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul explains this future hope in Romans chapter 11. This future hope for Israel, it says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Remember, this is Paul writing to the church in Rome, and he's taught, he, Paul is a Jew, and he's, God welcomes in the Gentiles. Why? To make the Jews jealous. In verse 12, he says, now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? He's speaking of this time when Israel will be brought back into God's fold. And what I want you to see from this promise that he's made to the nation of Israel, his chosen people, as well as the Gentiles, but he makes a specific promise to Israel, is that his, even though they've rejected him, is there's hope for them. There's hope in the future. When Christ returns, he's going to bring them back. There's going to be a remnant that is saved. And it gives us hope too. Because just as much of Israel rejected their Messiah, humanity at large has done the exact same thing. We are part of that humanity at large. We do the exact same thing. We sin. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are currently in rejection of Him. You're currently saying, I want to run my life the way I want to run it, and I don't want it to run it the way you want me to run it. But there's hope. There's salvation to come. This Old Testament quote that's in the end of, at the end of verse 39. You can look at the end of verse Matthew chapter 20, 23, verse 39. It says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When they say that, when, it, when anybody comes to a place of repentance and ends up saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they're looking at Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And when they say that, that's coming out of Psalm 118, verse 26. When they say that, it's a... They're recognizing the promise that God has given them to call, him to, themselves, to call themselves to Him. But there's also a meaning around that verse to where everyone is going to say that. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes to the church in Philippi, verses 10 to 11, he says, So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every knee. People that have believed in Him, and repentance, and faith, and those that have not. But he says, every knee will bow. Every knee that is 
uh, under heaven. Every knee that is on the earth, every knee that is under the earth. And that every time we'll confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This time that when He comes back and He reigns on earth, He's going to come and He's, he's going to judge sin finally. For some to salvation and for some to judgment. Those that haven't repented of their sins and placed their faith in Him. And so this closes down our third perfect reaction of our Lord Jesus Christ. His glorious return is going to come. It's going to happen. He's going to rule on this earth for a thousand years. He's going to judge sin finally. And His glorious return for those that repent of their sins and place their faith in Him, Israel and Gentile alike, is going to be one of hope. One of blessing. But for those that don't repent and believe, it's going to be one of judgment. So I have a question. The, the whole theme of this morning, or one of the main tenets of this morning, is the idea of rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And they rejected Him in the sense of they pursued their own idols. They worshipped what they wanted to worship, and it wasn't God. So I want you to think about it. What are the idols of your heart? When it comes to a choice in your life, do I worship and obey Jesus Christ as Lord, or do I choose to worship and obey whatever I want that's not Him? Those are your idols. We've seen the idols of unbelieving Israel. They were power. They wanted to be in power. They didn't want to obey Jesus. They were pride. They wanted to think that they were right and everything that Jesus on earth was teaching them was wrong. And they were selfish. And we've seen what it cost them. It cost them the rejection as God's people. Rejection by God. 1 John chapter 2 spells out what our idols often fall, in, fall under in categories. I'll read this for you. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. So you heard it, right? The things in the world. And he, speci- he specifies even more. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For, explaining what is in the world, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. He just told you. Those are where our idols on this right now is a way that he characterized them for us. Those are the things that we get caught up into. He says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Those things are not from the Father. If you're looking for the idols of your heart, they're going to be finding categories like that. So in summary, we've looked at three perfect reactions of our Lord this morning. If we go backwards and look. In the first perfect reaction, we saw His lament and compassion. And my encouragement for you is to remember and to actually know and believe the God you serve and to know His love for you. He does. He passionately loves for you. In the second perfect reaction, we saw His just judgment. So at the same time, I also want you to know that He will come again and He will perfectly judge sin. But He's waiting. He's waiting for all that would come to Him in repentance and faith. And thirdly, we looked at His perfect reaction of His glorious return and our hope. And I want your minds to run to the Gospel. To run to that Gospel, that promise to save all who repent and believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. It's still valid today. And He wants you to participate. So in conclusion, if, you're not, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, please hear me. You are currently under God's wrath. You are currently in rejection of Him. And He's told you the end. But there is hope. And repent of your sins. And place your faith in Him. And He will welcome you underneath His wings just like that farmyard example of the fuzzy chick underneath the hen's wings. And He wants that. And if you're in Christ, consider your own heart. Look for your idols there, the things that tempt you, the things that want you to worship them instead of Christ. And you should write, write this down in your, your notes. Psalm 1914. 
is what I would want for you to think about as you walk forward. It says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 1914. So believers, search your heart. Look for those moments where that's not happening and repent. And look for those moments where that is happening and praise the Lord. Pray with me, please. We'll close. Lord, we love you very much. We thank you so much for this opportunity to dive into your word and to see your heart towards your people, your people Israel, and to see your heart for your people, all of humanity, where you have a plan of salvation. Even in the face of our rejection of you, you have a plan of salvation. You love us so much that, as your word says, even while yet sinners, you still died. Christ, you still died for us. Lord, I pray this morning for your believers in this room that you would aid us in fighting the idols that pull us away. And Lord, for those that don't know you in this room, that you would pull their hearts to you through repentance and salvation and faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, alone. And you would welcome them in to your adopted family. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.